Welcome to episode four of So Strange. I'm your host, Andy Myers. I'm an author and a paranormal researcher who aspires to be abducted by aliens one day. Not probed, nope, just, you know, taken for a spin around the cosmos and gently placed back in my bed. It hasn't happened yet, so apparently I'm not the type of fish that aliens are trying to catch. Anyways, I've got a great show lined up for you today. We're talking about the men in black. Yes, the MIBs. Those awkward, intimidating guys in black suits who mysteriously show up to intimidate people after they've had a UFO encounter. So strap on your tinfoil hat and black sunglasses, because things are about to get so strange. Big shout out to Will Smith and Tommy Lee Jones for this episode. The Men in Black movie franchise, of course, was a big hit in the mid-90s. But the phenomenon of Men in Black goes way back, way back to 1947, which coincidentally is the same year of the infamous Roswell UFO crash. But the, the Men in Black have been around for a very long time. That case in 1947 is one we're actually going to cover later on in this episode. So who exactly are the Men in Black? Let's uh, rewind and give a little context before we go jumping headfirst into the deep end here. So men in black show up unannounced, sometimes at people's homes, sometimes out in public. They show up after a person has had some sort of encounter with alien or UFO phenomenon. They usually travel in twos. Of course, there are cases where there's only one of them and, and other times three, but usually they travel in twos. They usually travel in black Cadillacs, you know, black unmarked vehicles with tinted windows. So at least they're rolling in style. Got to give them credit for that. Some of them claim to work for the government, but they never exactly show ID or say which branch of the government they're working for. And in other cases, they're just completely vague about who they are. They give no no background or context as to who they are, why they're there, or what, um, you know, or what right they have to be, you know, bothering these people at their homes. Uh, they, they use intimidation tactics, uh, sometimes empty threats. They'll say things like, you didn't see anything, you're not going to say anything, just forget it ever happened. And, you know, they, they often leave it vague, <laughs> you know, kind of one of those threats, don't say anything or else. But in many cases, they never really specify what or else means. There's not very many encounters where people were actually harmed by men in black, so it, it kind of makes the, the phenomenon even more mysterious. Like, why the heck would they show up just to play mind games with people if they're never going to follow through with some of these threats that they're, that they're making? The other thing we have to consider is... And some of these instances, you know, you have like, for example, a husband and wife who saw a light in the sky and it was strange, you know, and they saw a disc-like craft and, you know, they go home and go to sleep and say, wow, that was weird. In some of these cases, they don't even spread the news. They don't even talk about it. And some of these happened before social media. So what I'm trying to say is they're, they're not even going public with what they saw. And still, they have men in black showing up at their house the very next day, somehow uh, privy to the to the to the knowledge that they saw something the night before um, so it kind of deepens the mystery a little bit um, some people have even had footage uh, stolen from them you know uh, still shot you know photographs video evidence uh, you know have their homes broken into and and just 
they that men in black apparently just take all their all their footage, all their documentation, and sometimes it's just you know paperwork. It's just research that people have accumulated on the subject of aliens and UFOs, and you know they'll find their house broken into with all their stuff taken, and you know I, I suppose it's uh, you know getting into tinfoil hat territory there, but it makes you wonder: are Men in Black suppressing the the mystery of UFOs and aliens altogether? They don't want this information to to be public knowledge. Um, it gets even stranger when we talk about the appearance of men in black. Uh, obviously men in black, yeah, a lot of them are wearing black suits with black ties. But the funny thing about their their wardrobe, it's it's almost like their suits don't fit correctly is what a lot of people reports. You know, their pant legs are are too short, <laughs> wearing some rock in the high waters, and in other times it's it's almost like their their uh, jacket's too big, you know. And as far as their physical body, there a lot of people report these men in black encounters where their skin is really pale, like unusually pale. Uh, either you know they've never spent a day in their sun, a day of their life in the sun, or it's almost like they just have white makeup caked on. And some some reports uh, say that their lips are unusually thin. Some people report that their eyebrows are almost like painted on, or their eyebrows are missing altogether. Of course, they're usually wearing the black sunglasses. Uh, pork pie hat, uh, kind of that old-fashioned round rim style of hat is, is often what they're reported as, as wearing as well. I guess that goes well with their old Cadillac. Um, and, and again, going back to the vehicle, the thing about the Men in Black sightings, a lot of people say, yeah, it was a Cadillac, but it was an old-fashioned Cadillac. So even in modern days, there's instances where people have a run-in with these characters, but the Cadillac looks like it was from like the 1950s or 1960s, but they always say it was in pristine condition. It's almost as if like they were time travelers, and the car only had a you know a couple dozen miles on it. When people watch Men in Black move, they say that they're they're jerky, awkward movements, almost like almost like if you took an alien and, and tried to cram them into a person's uh, physical body. It's like they just can't figure out how their arms and legs work. Uh, so it's kind of creepy in some instances to to watch them walk and, and move about. And their speech is, is no better. A lot of them are kind of monotone, uh, robotic sounding. Uh, some of the, their cadence is a little bit off. The words that they use are not really uh, put together in a, in a typical fashion that like, a normal person would speak. So again, you know, are these, are these people not even human? What's going on here? But they, it sounds like they need to get their life together, right? I mean, <laughs> come on, homeboy. You got makeup running down. You got your foundation doesn't even match your skin tone. You got an eyebrow sliding off the side of your face. You got your wig on backwards. <laughs> you got one leg shorter than the other. It looks like you got your foot caught in a bear trap. But, you know, but that's, that's enough to be creepy. Next level is, like, how the hell do they know that people are having these run-ins with extraterrestrial you know spacecraft and and how like how do they how do they figure this out um, nobody really knows we may never know for sure but I've rounded up uh, from the interwebs some very creepy true stories of people who have encountered this men in black phenomenon and I'm going to share them with you here so buckle up The doctor threatened by the men in black and told to stop his UFO research. Dr. Albert K. Bender was a well-written and extremely intelligent researcher who founded the International Flying Saucer Bureau. 
1955, his research was about to yield serious fruit as he prepared to unveil a paper that would prove the U.S. government had, to one degree or another, covered up proof of UFOs. He planned to publish his findings in the Space Review. That was until he was visited by the men in black. Bender claims that three men dressed in all black visited him at his home and warned him against pursuing the topic of UFOs any further. The men left Bender scared for his life, and he immediately shut down all his research and the Flying Saucer Bureau. Many people who knew him claim that Bender was a changed man after this encounter. His later works were rambly, almost unreadable, and he seemed to live his life in constant anxiety and terror. He purported to still receive mysterious phone calls with nobody on the other end until the end of his life in 2002. The next encounter is titled The Maury Island Incident. Harold Dahl and his son were salvaging logs on a fishing boat when they spied six donut-shaped crafts flying in the air above them. The crafts dropped molten waste onto the lake, which allegedly killed Dahl's dog and injured his son. A few days later, after talking about the affairs with his boss and friends, he was visited by a mysterious man dressed in all black. The man urged him not to discuss the encounter. Not long after, he was also visited by several Air Force agents who were said to be on a mission to, quote-unquote, gather information. Dahl's story finally got the attention of various law enforcement agencies in the United States, leading the FBI to write a report on the matter. Not long after the encounter with the men in black, Dahl claimed that the whole thing was a hoax, but recanted years later, having allegedly made the first confession under duress. I actually remember reading this story many years ago, and it went into great detail about that molten, you know, kind of lava-type material that was just spinning and flying off of this extraterrestrial craft that was hovering above them over this lake. It's really sad that the that the dog got killed, and, you know, all of that would be enough to traumatize a person for, for life, but, you know, uh, then to be pestered by the men in black, well, that's a, that's a little too much. The next story is titled, The Solway Firth Spaceman Photo Invites a Government Visit. Jim Templeton was shocked to discover this figure in the background of a photo he took of his daughter. The figure was not in the camera's view when he took the photo, and nobody had any idea where it came from. The film was verified as authentic by Kodak, and Templeton's story went public. Not long after, he was visited by two quote-unquote government agents who referred to themselves as number nine and number ten. They demanded to see the site of the photo and questioned Templeton about the event. When Templeton told them he didn't see the figure personally, the men became angry and stormed out of the field, never to be seen again. Templeton was later contacted by two employees at a missile launch pad in Australia who claimed that they saw two figures that resembled the man in his daughter's photo on the launch pad security footage. Apparently, the missiles at that site in Australia had been produced only 20 miles away from the field where Templeton took the photo. And this Solway Firth Spaceman photo, it's, well, it went viral long before going viral was actually a thing. But if you're not familiar with this photo, it's a, a picture of his daughter sitting in what kind of looks like a meadow. And behind her in the background is some weird looking figure wearing a white outfit. It, it almost looks like a beekeeper's outfit because it's all white and there's almost like this mask or netting that goes over this head. And, you know, as the story went, yeah, Jim, Jim never saw that figure in the background when he, he was just taking a picture of his daughter. 
But interesting, the people who showed up were labeled as number nine and number ten. That's pretty pretty vague to say the least. Next story is titled "Guns No Good Against Aliens." I don't know why that title makes me laugh. Y'all guns ain't no good against them aliens. <laughs> what you thinking? Paul Miller was returning home after a hunting trip when they saw a luminous disc in the sky. The disc landed in an empty field and two humanoids emerged from the craft. Miller fired his gun at them and believed to have injured one when he fled down a rural road in his car. However, in that moment, he realized he had lost time. It was almost three hours later than when he first encountered the craft. He shrugged it off and went back to his Air Force job the next day. However, upon entering work, he was immediately confronted by three men in black suits. They told him that they had his file, quote-unquote. Despite having told nobody about the event, the men said that they knew about it and mentioned that the encounter would be best forgotten. Paul says, They seemed to know everything about me, where I worked, my name, everything else. Miller said. They also questioned him about his experiences as if they already knew the answers. Miller, terrified, did not come forward about his experience until years later. You know, I'm no, uh, you know, counselor when it comes to extraterrestrial encounters, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's probably in your best interest not to fire a weapon at an extraterrestrial being. Because, uh, A, we don't want them to start an intergalactic war. And, uh, B, you know, your bullet's nothing compared to their ray guns and butt probes. So just, you know, holster that, holster that pistol and walk the other way. Next story is titled, Radio Personality Harassed by Journalists, quote-unquote, for Talking About UFOs. Danny Gordon was a radio personality who became interested in a flurry of Wythe County UFO sightings. Multiple people across the county claimed to have seen bizarre objects in the sky, and Gordon decided to investigate. Gordon became obsessed with getting photos of the objects, including one time where an entire school bus of students saw the UFOs flying over a shopping mall as Gordon took photos. Eventually, Gordon snapped a few photos at extremely close range that allegedly verified they were not of this world. However, strange things began happening to Gordon. He received a phone call from a man who claimed to be ex-military and warned him that the research could cost him everything and urged him to stop for his family's sake. Gordon was also interviewed by two men in black suits who claimed to work for a magazine publication. Not long after the interview, Gordon realized all his photos were missing. He contacted the magazine for information, and they claimed to have never heard of, much less commissioned, an article about him. Not long after, Gordon suffered a heart attack, and his doctor warned him that all the research and stress was jeopardizing his health. Gordon gave up the story and was never bothered again. The whole school bus of children uh, seeing a craft that was not of this world, that's noteworthy. That's very interesting. I love these cases, these these encounters that involve multiple witnesses. You know, not that uh, one observer of a UFO is, you know, can be easily discredited, but when you have a whole school bus or a whole group or a whole, you know, whole football stadium full of people who, who can verify seeing the same thing, it just lends that much more credibility to a case, in my opinion. The next story is titled, UFO Researchers Harassed at Home by Real Men in Black. UFO researcher Jack Robinson and his wife Mary began to experience extremely strange events as they pursued more alien and UFO-related research. 
They would come home to find their house rummaged and looked through, and their UFO files disturbed. Mary also began to notice a strange man in a black suit and hat turning up at their apartment from the doorway. Mary mentioned this activity to a friend who drove over and saw what she was talking about for himself. The friend, Tim Green Beckley, snapped a photo of the man, and this is believed to be one of the most ironclad pieces of proof of the men in black. The next story is titled, Professor Harassed in Library for Reading a UFO Book. Professor Peter Rosowitz claimed that he was reading a UFO book in the library when a strange pale man wearing all black sat down next to him. The man began talking to the professor and asked him about his opinion on flying saucers. The professor replied that he wasn't super interested, and the man became very agitated. He eventually left, leaving Professor Rosowitz extremely uncomfortable and anxious. He did not reveal this story until many years later when he finally gave a lecture on the subject. He remains convinced that it was a Men in Black official who confronted him in the library and to this day is trying to find more people who have had similar experiences. <laughs> I can just picture that scene. Yeah, he's sitting down reading his reading his UFO stories and the Men in Black sits down. You interested in UFOs? Eh, sort of, kind of, not super. And men are, <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> Men in Black gets up and just storms off. Personally, I'm glad that uh, I've never been harassed by Men in Black for reading a UFO book <laughs> because I've been reading books on weird things since I was a very little child. And uh, I'd be a lot of visits from the MIB if they were uh, disgruntled about that. This next story involves actor Dan Aykroyd. Yes, that Dan Aykroyd of Ghostbusters. He allegedly had a show shut down by Men in Black. Dan Aykroyd has come forward with his story about how he was taping a show about the paranormal. He stepped out to take a phone call from Britney Spears. <laughs> Celebrity problems, right? He stepped out to take the phone call, uh, and she was asking him to appear on a Saturday Night Live skit with her when he noticed a black Ford parked across the street. A tall man stepped out from the Ford and stared him down. Aykroyd turned away for a moment and then turned back to find that the man and the car had completely vanished. After he finished his phone call, he returned to the studio to learn that his show had been canceled and he was ordered to stop filming immediately. Some doubt his claim, but Aykroyd says, quote, he knew what he saw and he maintains that there was some kind of connection between these men in black and the end of his paranormal show. For anybody uh, who doesn't know, Dan Aykroyd heavily uh, interested in all things occult and mysterious. Uh, he's been on you know countless podcasts uh, talking about everything from uh, aliens and UFOs to ghosts. And I, I think actually he was a big driving influence between, uh, be excuse me, behind the movie Ghostbusters being made in the first place because he he grew up immersed in the in the paranormal. I think he had uh, family members who were uh, from a very young age, kind of uh, you know. Uh, teaching him about these things and it kind of took over his life and you know kind of morphed from a an interest to a hobby to a passion yeah but that's that is kind of creepy i mean what are the odds like he sees this mysterious person outside of his studio and then moments later the whole thing shut down i'm going to pause here and ask you to do me a solid real quick go ahead and rate and review so strange on your podcast platform of choice you know, those reviews go a long way to ensure the continued success of my show. And I sure love making these for you, so I'd like to keep doing it for many years to come. I'll also remind you, uh, you can go ahead and check out my other podcast. It's called Paranormal Dads. 
It's it's done with my good buddies Eddie and Pat. We talk about the monsters, myths, and mysteries of the world with a heavy helping of humor. And uh, Paranormal Dads can be found uh, anywhere you get your podcast. The next Men in Black encounter is titled The Telepathic Encounter. A man known only as Larry claims that one night he was drifting off to sleep when he was contacted by a strange presence who communicated with him telepathically. This weird presence explained that he was not from Earth, but beyond that he gave no reason for contacting Larry. Somewhat skeptical, Larry asked the presence to provide some proof of its existence beyond simply sending thoughts into his head. He wanted a face-to-face meeting. The presence agreed to provide him with further proof. He would show up during the day when Larry was with his best friend. Larry wasn't sure what to make of the entire thing the next day, and while he continued on with his life as usual, he obsessed about the dream for months afterwards. Eventually, he caught up with his buddy at an Independence Day celebration at a nearby park. As Larry was talking with his friend, a black van pulled up nearby, and two black-clad men got out. Two more similarly dressed men exited the van after them, but they did not appear to be entirely human in shape. The strange men sat down at a nearby picnic table, looked over at Larry, and then re-entered their van and left just as mysteriously as they had arrived. Larry never found out why they had contacted him. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that if extraterrestrials are real, which they are, 100%, I'm convinced that they are, but why couldn't they have telepathic abilities? You know, there's star systems in our universe that are thousands, millions, and even billions of years older than our Milky Way. And so, you know, given eons, you know, you have a couple million or a few billion years to to develop and evolve and advance, you know, telepathic communication. <laughs> I mean, why why couldn't it happen? You know, if if, if abilities and you know, intuition and things like that continue to evolve. Uh, maybe they're just a lot more advanced than we are. I mean, hell, uh, people all over the world, uh, you know, we're intuitive beings. You know, there's some some more so than others, but people have intuition and, you know, telepathic abilities are just, you know, taking that to the next level. Uh, you know, aliens, you know, some of them could be so advanced that their uh, their brain power and technology would seem no less than magic to us, right? This next story is titled Alleged Men in Black Caught on Video. A video was captured of two men in black who allegedly entered a hotel in Canada and started asking questions about one of the hotel employees. The stories say that the employee in question had recently seen a UFO and had told others about his experience. Not long after, these two men showed up at his place of employment. Luckily for him, he was not working during their visit. According to witness accounts, the men were asking people not only about the employee in question, but also about conspiracies in general. They had no eyebrows or eyelashes, strange hypnotic eyes, bald heads possibly disguised with wigs, and clothes that seemed to be meant for fitting in but somehow were just enough out of place to raise alarm bells. These two men were definitely caught on camera. The question is whether they were clandestine government agents beings from another world in disguise, or simply the product of a clever hoax. Regardless of the answer, there's something hair-raising about two men in suits walking into a hotel in the middle of the day and asking strange questions about one of the employees, then leaving as mysteriously as they came. So there you go, one of the strange cases where the MIBs were wearing a tire that just didn't quite seem to fit right.
You know, either that or you know, was the two hoaxers who just kind of walked into men's warehouse and grabbed the first suit that they saw off the shelf and just threw it on. Uh, it's interesting, though. Interesting. But again, the undertones are, hey, don't talk about UFOs. You know, who's interested in UFOs? You know, let me find that person. I need to talk to them. The next story is titled, A Postal Worker's Terrifying Experience. An anonymous postal worker from Washington, D.C. was out delivering mail one day when he decided to stop and eat an apple. <laughs> and why not? Delivering mail burns a lot of cal calories. Sometimes you just got to stop and eat an apple, right? When he was finished, he looked around for a trash can, and finding no trash cans, he decided to just toss it onto the ground. Before he could leave the area, a security guard approached and lectured him for his negligence, explaining that the entire building and the surrounding grounds were under constant surveillance. The postal worker thought about this, along with the fact that he already had to be buzzed in to deliver the mail, and began thinking that there was more to this place than meets the eye. A while later, he was out on his usual delivery run when he came by the foreboding building again. This time, he saw three men walking towards the building, except they didn't appear to be like men. They waddled when they walked instead of putting one foot in front of the other, and they were abnormally thin. It was this thinness more than anything that frightened him. Though shaken, he decided to soldier on and march his way up to the door to deliver the mail. When he entered, he found a group of men who began questioning him about what he had seen moments earlier. He was flabbergasted and unable to respond until one of the strange beings who had seen him earlier walked up near him, at which point he felt even more terrified. After more grilling by the men in the room and after repeating that he had seen nothing at all, he was allowed to leave. His mail route was changed shortly after. The next story is titled, The Man in Black Who Liked to Hang Out. In most stories, the men in black are malevolent, intimidating entities who only appear briefly after someone sees something they weren't supposed to see. But that's not always the case. In one account, a woman claims that when she was a child, her engineer father was regularly visited by a man in black who went simply by the name Lev. This man was completely bald, which she noted was very odd. When she went to shake his hand, the skin was impossibly smooth, as if he had no hair whatsoever on his body. The man constantly wore his trademark dark suit, glasses, and hat, even on scorching summer days. He was known for hanging around several engineers in the area, and her father always visited him in a little house near the local supermarket. The woman who tells the story says that she is sure her father knew Lev was an alien, although she never figured out what they talked about during their meetings. A Visit to the State Department an anonymous man relayed a tale of a strange experience he had while sightseeing in Washington, D.C. Without realizing that there really wasn't anything of interest for a civilian to see, he wandered into the State Department building. He meandered through the lobby for a while until security became suspicious of him and headed over to usher him out of the building. However, before they could do so, he saw something that he would never forget. The elevator opened and five men got out. Two of them were very businesslike and wore gray suits that were formal, but hardly remarkable beyond that. What drew his attention were the other three men in their escort. These men wore black hats pulled low over their eyes and long black trench coats, even though it was the middle of summer. The appearance seemed so strange that our observer would only describe it as cartoonish. 
As they were walking by, one of the strange men lost his footing on the marble floor and fell to the ground, dropping his portfolio in the process. Upon helping him up, he noticed that the man's legs seemed extraordinarily weak, and it felt like there was a thick layer of wool underneath his suit. Even stranger, the man's expression never appeared to change at all, despite falling onto the hard marble floor. Near the dropped portfolio, he found a small coin with words written in no language that he could identify. One side depicted a man with features like a wolf, and the other had navigational lines and two crescent moons. There you go, MIB. Rocking those black trench coats like they're in a Matrix movie. The next story is titled The Men in Gray. A little variant here. I kind of like this. Normally, the sneaky men who appear after UFO sightings are dressed all in black, but in one tale from Essex, England, they chose gray suits. William Shearer claimed to have seen a UFO, and a few days later, two men showed up at his house. One of the men stayed by the car and maintained an intimidating presence while the other grilled Shearer about his experience. On the first visit, however, the man seemed more concerned with gaining permission to enter Shearer's home than the answers Shearer was giving him. The men spoke in a strange voice that seemed flat and expressionless, and they had extremely pale skin. This, along with the oddly intimidating behavior, was enough to scare Shearer, and he chose not to let them into his house. Unfortunately for him, his experience was not yet at an end. The men ominously proclaimed that they could visit him again, not long after, they turned up at his work. They made it clear that they wanted to talk about UFOs and once again asked permission to enter. When Shearer turned them down again, the men vanished and never returned. Although Shearer believes that since then, his phone has been tapped. The asking permission, you know, the again and again asking permission to enter his home, it almost reminds me of another uh, mysterious phenomenon, the, the black-eyed children, if you've heard of that one. <laughs> Pure nightmare fuel. But it's this uh, kind of, if I could pick two phenomenon that are most closely uh, related or similar, it would probably be men in black and black-eyed children. Uh, black-eyed children, these mysterious, creepy little people, show up knocking on people's doors, insisting that they need to be let inside uh, and in a few cases, like there was a instance where a black eyed children insisted they need to be let inside so they could use a guy's telegraph. <laughs> Mind you, this was like 1990, uh, long after telegraphs were a thing. So I don't know, weird stuff, but almost akin to like vampires, you know, it said vampires can't uh, come in unless you invite them. So I don't know, maybe there's a subsection of men in black who also need to be invited inside. So if somebody shows up at your doorstep, Wearing black suit, black sunglasses, has very pale skin. I'd think twice before you invite them in for a glass of water. All right, I'm going to stop here and tell you that the secret letter for today's episode is the letter A. A as in apple. You might want to write that down, jot it down in the note section of your phone. Uh, you know, break out a notepad and, and keep it somewhere safe. Every episode of So Strange, I'm going to give you one letter. And at the end of the season, if you have collected all the letters, you can unscramble them to discover the secret word of the season. Now, the word is going to be paranormal-themed, obviously, and there are 12 episodes in season one of So Strange. So there you go, the, the super secret word of the season. It will be 12 letters long. The letter for today is A. And if you're looking to collect the other letters from the previous three episodes, well, you'll have to go listen to them. And hidden somewhere in the beginning, middle, or end, 
uh, I divulge the secret letter. It's kind of fun. And uh, why? Why would you go through this trouble? <laughs> you might be asking yourself. Well, at the end of the season, anybody who can email me, uh, send me uh, your unscrambled secret word of the season, you're going to get access to some bonus content, prizes, uh, some giveaways, some other perks that I've got going on. So fun little thing to keep track of. And I thought it'd keep us entertained. So, but back to the content. Well, we're getting close to the end of the episode, and I have an intuition you're probably wondering if I saved the best for last. Well, you're in luck, because I absolutely did. These next two stories actually come from a book called The Mammoth Book of UFOs. There's a whole section in the book about MIBs, and I am going to recap the two most spooky stories. So dim the lights, secure your headphones, and get ready for two stories that are so incredibly strange. So in 1976, there was a man by the name of Dr. Herbert Hopkins, and he lived in Maine. He was actually a hypnotist and a consultant who was working on a handful of UFO cases. So he got a phone call one day from a man who claimed to be the vice president of the New Jersey UFO Research Organization. And this man wanted to come over and talk with Dr. Hopkins about some of his cases that he had been working on. So Dr. Hopkins says, sure, that'd be, that'd be great. So there's a knock on Hopkins' door just a few minutes later, which was really odd because it, it almost seemed like there was no way that the man could have arrived so quickly, especially since he was apparently traveling by foot. There was no car parked in Dr. Hopkins' driveway. And, you know, back in 1976, obviously people didn't have cell phones, and the nearest phone booth was uh, more than a, a couple miles away. So he was stumped as to how this man uh, appeared on his porch so, so quickly. The man was wearing a black suit. He had a hat, shiny shoes, and interestingly enough, he had suede gloves on his hands. It looked very fancy. Uh, oddly... Hopkins remembers the man had no eyebrows or no eyelashes. He took off his hat, and Hopkins noticed that he was not only completely bald, but the skin on top of his head almost looked dead, like dead white. Uh, if you could almost think of like, uh, you know, somebody with wrinkly fingers who has hypothermia. It just, it didn't look right. The man wiped his lips, wiped his mouth with the back of his hand, with the back of his glove, and Hopkins noticed that the man was wearing red lipstick and as he wiped his hand across his face it kind of smeared some of that lipstick onto his cheek you know but Hopkins trying to be you know civil and non-judgmental they just went about their conversation they talked about some of the cases that Hopkins had worked on and some of the hypnosis sessions uh, that he had been recording you know working with people who who thought they were abducted by aliens and whatnot the man uh, instructed Hopkins to get rid of all of his audio recordings. He he politely said uh, it would be in his best interest to destroy them all. Uh, Hopkins found this kind of interesting. You know why would he why would he do such a thing? You know uh, taking orders from this man he had just met. Uh, kind of out of nowhere, the man told Hopkins, he says, "You have two coins in your pocket. Take one out." So Hopkins kind of feels around in his pockets. Sure enough, he did have two coins in his pocket. He thought it was kind of odd, but he took out he took out one of these coins and held it in his hand. The the strange man with the white bald head uh, stared at it and instructed Hopkins to do the same. 
Uh, Hopkins noticed the the coin in his hand right before his very eyes. It started to get fuzzy, almost as if it was fading in and out of out of reality. And eventually, the coin seemed to dematerialize, and it completely disappeared forever. And in a very kind of creepy tone, the stranger said, "Nobody on your planet will ever see that coin again." Now. Hopkins was allegedly at the time working on a very famous uh, UFO abduction case known as the Betty and Barney Hill case. And the the strange man uh, that had just made the coin disappear, uh, you know, he asked Hopkins if he had been working with Barney. Hopkins admitted that he had, and uh, the, the strange man said, Barney didn't have a heart, much like you no longer have a coin. His words began uh, suddenly became very labored, uh, almost like a you know like a talking toy who is running low on battery. The the strange man was barely able to stand to his feet, and he said, quote, "My energy is running low. Must go now. Goodbye." With that, he awkwardly walked to the door. His steps and general movement of his body was very jerky. It didn't look natural or human at all. At this point, Dr. Hopkins saw a bluish light glowing out in his driveway, which he thought was kind of odd. At the time, he kind of chalked it up to headlights, although, as we know, uh, most headlights do not have a bluish tint to them. But he was so kind of taken aback by the strange interaction that he never did go outside, so he's not sure if there was a car in the driveway or, um, you know, how this man left the neighborhood. Uh, Soon after the, the strange visit, Dr. Hopkins learned that the New Jersey UFO Research Organization didn't exist, and therefore they had no vice president. Therefore, whoever this strange man was, uh, was a complete mystery. So nevertheless, it startled him to the point where he did end up destroying many of the recordings from the hypnosis sessions that he had done for the UFO cases. Uh, A while later, a stranger called Dr. Hopkins' son. His son was named John. And uh, this person invited John and and John's wife and and the whole family out for dinner. Now, this part of the story, I was a little unclear whether or not this stranger wanted to discuss UFOs or what the nature of the get-together was. But they obliged, and they they met uh, this strange man and a colleague of his out at dinner. Now, the man showed up with, uh, with a woman, presumably his wife, or so they thought, and the two strangers were in their 30s, but what was really odd is they were wearing extremely old-fashioned clothing. You know, their clothing looked outdated by 30 or 40 years. Uh, the man and the woman walked extremely awkwardly, almost like they took baby steps, uh, like almost like they were afraid that they were going to fall over forward. Throughout the dinner, it was made for an extremely awkward dinner because throughout the conversation they would slip in inappropriate sexual comments and they would even fondle each other in front of in front of everybody else and sometimes they would even ask inappropriate uh, questions uh, personal questions to the entire Hopkins family so without it goes without saying uh, social social norms and protocol were kind of a lost thing on, on these two people uh, when it was time to wrap up dinner and leave, the man stood to his feet, but before he could walk off, he apparently froze as if he couldn't move, almost like a, a toy that had, like a wind-up toy that had run out of 
that had run out of energy and was frozen. The lady stood to her feet uh, kind of in a panic and, and pleaded with the family. She says, help me, I, I can't move him by myself. Before the family had time to stand up and help, somebody must have hit the go button on, on her husband because the two the couples started to walk towards the exit door again in very awkward, jerky, um, short little baby steps and they walked out the door and never looked back. What do you do with that? That's that's a lot to unpack. <laughs> that that's almost uh, it belongs in the miscellaneous junk drawer, you know, of the paranormal realms. How awkward! How strange! Coins dematerializing. I, I don't even know what to do with that. Uh, clearly, all of these individuals that had been associated with the Hopkins family they didn't quite seem human. As to who they were and where they came from, we may never know. But classic, classic MIB. The final story for today's episode, again, comes from the Mammoth Book of UFOs, and it's a true story that took place in 1968 in Scarborough, North Yorkshire, and the, the girl's name was Adele. She was 16 years old at the time. She was home alone as her parents were out doing something, and she heard a knock at the door. She went to answer the door, and she saw that there was a man wearing a black suit. He had a round-rimmed uh, pork pie hat. He had a very odd pale complexion, and she said he was smiling. His, his smile was kind of almost creepy. It was the biggest, broadest, most beaming smile she's ever seen. His teeth were completely white. And she said, can I help you? And the man's whole body twitched, almost as if somebody you know, activated his on switch. His body jerked, and he, he suddenly said, quote, Do you have insurance? Is it now? She said his voice was robotic, uh, kind of computerized almost, um, and she was left wondering, is what now? But her parents, uh, you know, were set to be home in a little bit, so she simply told the man, you know, insurance, that's kind of my parents' territory, they're out, why don't you come back in a little bit, and maybe you can catch them and talk to them about, you know, your sales pitch or whatever. So the man suddenly began, he began sweating profusely, almost like from every pore in his skin. He just looked, he was drenched. He removed his hat, and she saw that he had a, a bald head, and he, he went to wipe the sweat off of his head, and she said she could clearly see that he had a thick layer of, like, stage makeup that he was wearing, and she could tell it kind of smeared when he wiped off the sweat. He then asked her if he could come inside for a cup of water. Uh, against her better judgment, uh, she invited him inside. You know, she said she was kind of worried that he was going to collapse on her doorstep from dehydration. So she let him in, and she knew that she wasn't supposed to invite strangers into the house, but throughout this whole interaction, she said she wasn't really threatened by him. She was just completely perplexed, just utterly dumbfounded, but she didn't feel threatened. So he walked into the house with very jerky movements, and allegedly his head was slightly tilted back, almost like a marionette or a puppet, and his mouth hung open a little bit. Now, I'm going to stop right there and say I would have been terrified, but that's just me. Maybe Adele comes from a hardier stock than I do. She says his pant legs and his shirt legs were far too short for his body. So, you know, on his wrists and ankles, she could see uh, skin that was pale white with absolutely no hair on it. He took a seat in the living room while she went to the kitchen to grab a cup of water, 
and when she returned a few seconds later, she found him at the mantel, uh, you know, kind of near the fireplace, staring at a clock that was on the mantel. At this point, she, you know, she was just a little nervous, so she began babbling and making small talk, and she said, oh yeah, that's, that's my dad's clock. He got it as a retirement present. At this moment, the, the strange man turned to her and said, quote, it is your father's time. Is it here and now? She handed him the glass of water, and he just stared at it for a while. It suddenly occurred to her that when he, when he asked to see a glass of water, he meant it literally. He, he just stared at the cup of water for uh, maybe 30 seconds, and then he finally handed it back to her without so much as taking a sip. He turned his attention back to the clock and said, quote, Your father, your father, his time, his time. He looked really uncomfortable and really wobbly, almost like he could hardly stand on his own two feet. Adele says he then tapped on the clock and said, quote, watch the lights. With no further explanation, he shuffled to the door. Uh, Adele kind of hurried over to the door and opened it up for him. She said otherwise it seemed like he was just going to walk straight into it. Uh, she uttered something to the effect of, you know, nice to meet you, have a good day. But this man walked down the stairs and down the driveway without saying another word, and he didn't even look back. She rushed over to the side window in the living room to get another look at him, but she said he had completely vanished, uh, which was really strange because she had a uh, an unobstructed view all the way up their very long, straight street. She says there was nowhere that he could have hid or vanished, uh, but he was he was simply gone. So a few hours later... Several lights entered her living room, um, kind of floating balls of floating orbs of light, and they entered through the living room window. They fluttered around the house for a few seconds, and then they exited through another window into the garden. And she said it didn't, it didn't break the window. It almost just it, the lights seemed like they could pass through solid objects. And wouldn't you know it? A few days later, the clock on the mantel uh, completely stopped working although it had been working just fine for the previous two years. Now, this is an odd one for for many reasons. Uh, but, you know, interestingly enough, this is one of those men in black cases where, you know, to our understanding, Adele and her family had no, uh, they had no experience or encounters with UFOs. But the strange man who arrived, just, he fit the bill, you know, down to almost every last detail. He had that kind of men in black demeanor about him, and, in this case, you know, his presence was almost a precursor to, to UFO activity, assuming, you know, that those lights may have been extraterrestrial in nature. Uh, but it's a, it's a strange one. It's, it's always given me goosebumps every time that I pull out this book and read it. But Men in Black, strange phenomenon. I know when the movies came out in the mid-90s, uh, everyone thought it was just, yeah, hey, it's a fun Hollywood movie, which it was, but it was actually based on, on a, real, a real phenomenon that's been around for a long time. Well, that about does it for today's episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you yourself have had a run-in with Men in Black uh, or have had an extraterrestrial experience or anything strange or para uh, paranormal, uh, feel free to email it to me. Maybe I'll share it on the show with your permission. In the show notes for this episode, I will leave my email address and a link to my website. Uh, I have a few books for sale in the genre of paranormal metaphysical stuff, so if that tri trips your trigger, you might be interested. And uh, so check that out. Uh, be sure to listen to my other podcast, Paranormal Dads. 
and uh, I'll catch you next time. But meanwhile, be safe out there, people. If you've always taken an interest in UFOs, if you've seen strange lights in the sky, you know, if you can't get enough of all things alien, uh, just be on the lookout. You know, if anybody wearing a, a black hat, black suit, black sunglasses shows up on your doorstep, if there's a Cadillac parked in your driveway, uh, don't answer the door. Because <laughs> if you've learned anything from today's episode, this world can be so strange. <laughs>